You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 207, The Harms of Institutionalizing Children. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Sandy, one of the things that I so appreciate about our work together is just how many amazing and wonderful partnerships you have built around the world. And not only those partnerships and friendships, but just how much we are able to learn from so many of the different people and organizations that you've had the privilege to work with over the years. And today, no different, right? Absolutely. And I have to say too, Dave, that it was such a pleasure to be on your podcast to talk about overlapping networks. And this is an example of overlapping networks. I have been partnering with Open Gate International, and then they introduced me to our guest today, Leonie Webster, who is a UK-trained healthcare clinical professional, a certified nurse, midwife practitioner, and she has academic and professional expertise in neonatal attachment, deinstitutionalization, trauma-informed care, policy, and reform for prevention of child maltreatment. And it goes on and on. And she's got 20 years of experience serving internationally. And in fact, lived in Honduras for seven years. I'm very excited to welcome Leonie to our show. Thank you for having me. All right. So we're going to talk about some of your work, but let's talk a little bit about your own personal experience and especially what you learned by living in Honduras for seven years and one of the biggest takeaways. Yes. Wow. Why do we start? There's a loaded question. Yes. I first went to Honduras in 2003, mainly for a short-time missions trip to go and observe clinical need within the remit of midwifery and obstetrics. And I was thrown into the arena of orphan and vulnerable children because the clinic that I worked in was next door to an orphanage, a residential facility. And I quickly became aware of the huge needs for legally orphaned and vulnerable children at high social risk, especially in a country with high conflict and political instability. So you were there and were you working all the time in the orphanage? I was invited to partner with some international missionaries who were looking after 17 children in a very small, beautiful Christian orphanage. And I quickly saw the realities of early institutional living for children who were legally abandoned or orphaned. And what were some of those consequences for those children in their development? 
So when I was working in the orphan place, atypical effects and consequences of institutional living largely depends on the age of the entry and how long the child remains in the residential facility. But I saw a catalogue of symptoms and behaviours amongst the children, psychosocial relationship problems, learning delays, cognitive development delays, disturbances and delays in physical growth, speech, social development, low emotional intelligence, and inappropriate lacks or absent boundary setting. Many of these behaviours just seemed normal amongst the children. Also, just incidences of anxiety, withdrawal, depression, it was really quite apparent very quickly that all was not well within the walls of a Christian residential facility. And I think I want to make it really clear that all of this is well-intentioned and the basic life needs are there. There's food, there's a place to lay your head, there's safety, the doors are locked, but something happens in the institutionalization of children that interferes with their normal development. And we took a team here from Vanguard to Romania one year. And Mm -hmm. one of the activities that our students did as part of Touched Romania, we visited a hospital, a state-run hospital, and spent two hours holding and playing with babies and toddlers. And this was Mm -hmm. an everyday outreach activity because in the state-run facility for those babies and toddlers, there was very little staff to do that for those babies. And that's an important aspect of their normal development. Play is, and being held is important Absolutely. And not only being held, but being seen and being valued. And I think one of the greatest challenges of long-term institutional living is, for the most part, it's run by lay personnel, employers. So the children remain in a constant state of uncertainty and anxiety because they're not parented. And then also, there's no guarantee that that primary caregiver, the employment of the orphanage, is not going to leave. So these children who are already vulnerable and have often have symptoms of PTSD, they have no certainty that the one person who is caring for them right now will remain. So obviously, uh, orphanage is busy. Employers have large amounts of children to look after. And sadly, uh, chores and needs of the organization often supersede the needs of the child. So lack of autonomy, lack of individuality, lack of connection and one-on-one care is really lacking. Subsequently, there are harmful effects on the children. Well, and some cultures have a different way of approaching child rearing as well. I lived in Greece for 10 years, and my background in pediatrics made me especially close to the women having babies. And so I would find myself in the hospital with someone and their newborn, and I would have 
older members of the family there. And when the baby was in the bassinet, I'd run over and pick the baby up and they would say, no, 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 don't do that. The baby will want to be picked up all the time. And that was a tradition passed down from generation to generation. So that becomes part of how children are raised in those kinds of institutionalized settings too, based on cultural practices. Is that right? That's right. And I come across incidences like this uh, quite frequently, Dr. Sunday, instances of conflict, of desiring to do what is right on behalf of the child, best practice initiatives for the child, wrestling with the culture of whatever nation that we're in. My question often is, is how do we as international, professional, NGO workers, how do we respond when cultural norms impinge upon evidence-based findings or at worst impede upon human rights and human development of the children in our care? Well, do you have a good answer for that? <laughs> oh, that's a great oh, question. <laughs> let's, let's break it down. Let's break it down. Let's talk about the evidence. Let's give a couple of examples of the evidence. Well, when we're dealing with young babies, infants, and neonates, obviously the formative years are incredibly important. They are the, the building blocks and the structures of which cognitive development will, will continue. So ideal best practice would be with a parent. It would be with a, a primary caregiver, a member of your family or an extended member of your family, someone who will, when you cry, they will come, they will meet your needs. There's eye contact, there's touch, there is comfort, there is immediate response to, to hunger and, and comfort and there's love. We speak a lot about best practice initiatives when child rearing and raising children, but ultimately children were designed to receive love. And sadly, in institutional settings, love from a committed parent is absent and we exchange love for management. So these young Infants, neonates, children under, under three, their building blocks, their foundational pathways are severely hindered in the absence of a primary caregiver and love. I absolutely agree. I understand that developing an attachment to a primary caregiver, whether it's a parent or a stable caregiver, is a primary goal for an infant, for them to learn that when they cry, someone sees them, someone hears them and responds. And when we don't respond, that reinforces distress and anxiety. And it doesn't promote a healthy cognitive development either. I'm always encouraged when I see parents, new parents especially, and caregivers that are working in institutions, hospitals, that are so willing to stop whatever they're doing and attend to a newborn because that newborn learns that they're important, that they're valued. If we wait and show up when they're 12 years old and tell them you're beautiful and you're valued, we're a little late to the game. So how can we begin to change 
our programs because we have thousands of orphanages that will need to come up to speed to better serve those that they really intentionally and with good intentions want to help. What do we, what steps can we take? Well, I don't think there's a a blanket response to how we can avoid the harmful consequences of institutionalized living. What I believe we can do is introduce a harm reduction model, which is evidence-based in its approach, which is child-focused and trauma-informed. And those harm reduction framework models can be broken into three preventative subgroups. First subgroup, the primary prevention measures, they may consist of provision and access to preventative measures such as family planning, pre- and postnatal maternity health service and access to those. Simple things like the elimination of poverty, the prevention of child exploitation and early marriages, the provision and access to multidisciplinary support teams and wraparound cares for single parents. And then also enhanced training into the prevention of trauma, abuse and neglect within residential settings through evidence-based trauma-informed training for direct primary care givers. So that Sorry. first that first module then is really aimed at strengthening the family base, that mother, so that they can keep their child. Absolutely. And then also we have a model here in the UK. We have foster placements for both mother and baby. So let's say a young mum with three children is abandoned by her partner. He leaves and she's, she's left home alone with three children. She doesn't have a career. She doesn't have an education. How is she going to be self sufficient and provide for her family. And what we found here in the UK that the the provision of foster homes for mother or parent and child really does help, usually within the, the first 12 months, just helps provide a safe place for mother and child until the mother can gain employment and find a secure home. Wow, that's great. Okay, second. The secondary preventative measures would be provision and access to professionally-led community-based family care models. For example, reunification of accurately paced deinstitutionalization when biological family options are feasible and safe. And then also to implement explicit measures to provide training for staff. We don't want to criticize the staff in institutions who are doing their best. What I found is most of them are sincerely there to help and to serve and care deeply about their children, but they lack professional evidence-based knowledge to best meet the needs, the holistic needs of the children in their care. That's so important. And that respect will help build bridges to equipping people with more informed approaches to the developmental needs, not just keeping the child fed and clean. Absolutely. And the third? 
the tertiary preventative measures, I believe we can do this through the creation and implementation of quality residential care professional standards and guidelines, Quality Care Commission. For the most part, residential facilities are ungoverned, they're unsupervised. No one knows what the level of care happens behind closed walls. We can include increasing personal standards for all uh, primary caregivers, their staff. We can implement mandatory criminal background checks for, for staff on the front line caring for orphans and vulnerable children. The caregivers themselves, they should have a job description, have a written copy or have it read to them regularly because we found that many of the, the primary caregivers in institutionalised orphanages and residential homes are illiterate. Do they know what is, is expected of them in their job and how can we help support them as they deliver primary care to the children? And then also, and this is a really important issue, I believe, Dr. Sunday, is the accreditation and licensing of all frontline residential facilities to motion care facilities to document how they're going to meet the needs of the infants and children in their care. Wow. So knowledge is, is really a basis for helping build a stronger environment for these kids who have been placed there through adverse experiences in their lives. And we want the best for them. We don't want them to grow up with weakened emotional development, psychosocial development, and even physical development, cognitive development. So providing better training for the people that care for them is a key piece of that. I wonder if there is any support for helping an institution that maybe has 50, 100 children move to a more kinship-based model. I mean, it's great for us to say, wow, that's not healthy, but then there's no place in that country, in that community to place those children. How do we move to that model? Well, that's a very challenging question. And what I believe we can do first and foremost is how can we improve services within the confines of the existing residential facility? Can we, instead of having all boys in one area and girls separated in the other, let's say 100 boys at one side, 100 girls at the other, can we bring back sibling groupings together? If it is safe and there's no physical or sexual maltreatment between the siblings, can we bring the family, the siblings back together within the safety and protection of the residential facility? Can we advocate and find social workers to seek out existing biological family members or a neighbor or someone in their community and start the process of accurately paced the institutionalization. I say accurately paced, Dr. Sandy, because if we jump in too quickly and we're just going to say, okay, in a month, we're going to close this residential facility, where, where do the children go? So I, I say accurately paced institutionalization because it requires a lot of planning. It requires a multidisciplinary team approach to 
find existing family members, to find somebody in the community willing to take the child and their siblings. And let's be honest, if we can pay to fund them to live 16, 18 years in an institution, can we not redistribute those funds for them to be cared for in the community? Wow, that is such a great plan to move towards. Back in episode 161, Brandon Stiver in Tanzania talked to us about how his own family totally changed their perspective on caring for orphan children, and they became leaders in a family-based care plan that was so much better than the orphanage they planned they had originally been involved in. So I think there are examples out there for us to use to move into that. But your warning that it is accurately paced, that is critical. You also mentioned redirecting funds. So can we talk about how the faith-based community might be able to lead that? Do you have some ideas? Absolutely. Well, we're told in research that about 68, 70% of all international residential facilities, orphanages are actually funded partly or fully through the church. So that is a great example of the magnitude of help that the churches are currently involved in. But it also begs the question as to why, as the church, we keep building orphanages when we have six decades of research to say that institutions are the least appropriate environment for child rearing. And this is a dialogue question that I I like to have with church leaders, with mission schools or faith-based NGOs is can we, instead of raising funds for an orphanage, let's say there's a hundred children, can we not break down that hundred children and the and the cost that it, it takes? Let's say it costs twenty thousand dollars a year. Can we not break that down into subgroups and provide, let's say, two hundred dollars a month long-term investment. It has to be long-term, Dr. Sandy, because we found that some churches will will come on board and say, yes, we want to give, we want to support this family. So we remove the children out of the institution, we place them in foster care, but then three, four years down the road, the church withholds their funds or they stop sending the money and then the family are at an increased risk. So what we say is we would really like the church to redistribute the funding and support of Christian orphanages, but exchange that for long-term investment into family-based, community-placed homes, but it has to be long-term. So we ask them usually for a 10-year commitment. Are you willing to commit to this community in Tanzania, in Ethiopia, in Guatemala, whatever nation that you're in, can you as a church commit for 10 years? And at first that I get some wide eyes and big looks, but when I explain, that the children's lives are dependent upon your $200 a month. We can't just give in part. We have to give lavishly. Wow. I love that. And here's the thing. We were designed to be part of a family. 
We are hardwired for family. In my work here in the U.S. with victims of commercial sexual exploitation, we often lament how we 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 don't even use the word rescue anymore. We recover mm-hmm. a child, and then they go back to that environment because, and the, the girls have often explained to me, well, that's my family. And it's a whole different definition of a family, but it's the same person every day providing for their needs. And that's how they define family. So how do we begin to build models that support how we're hardwired for family? That is a great plan. Leone, I am so grateful for your voice on this. We're going to stay in touch. We're going to keep coming back to this issue because it's so important. I recently had a conversation with a brand new dad who the baby was born and he learned that the baby already recognizes mother's voice because mom's Mm -hmm. been carrying the baby for nine months. But it takes two weeks every day of that baby hearing dad's voice to be able to recognize. Mm -hmm. We have to be there every day. So we create that kind of attachment. Thank you so much. And we look forward to having you back on. Thank you for having me. Leonie and Sandy, uh, what a what an incredible conversation. And uh, just, Sandy, I'm just always struck by how many aspects of this there are for us to consider on really um, being able to reduce and hopefully end trafficking. And I hope that you've been touched by this conversation as well. And we would invite you to take the next step or perhaps to take the very first step going over to the endinghumantrafficking.org website. When you do that, you can download a copy of Sandy's book, The Five Things You Must Know, A Quick Start Guide to Ending Human Trafficking. It'll teach you the five critical things that Sandy has identified that you should know before you join the fight against trafficking. You can get it again at endinghumantrafficking.org. And uh, if you've been listening to the show for a bit, uh, two invitations for you. First, if you take a moment to rate or review the show on whatever platform you use to listen to the show on. And also, more importantly, if you know someone, a colleague, a friend, a peer, uh, perhaps someone you're in a uh, religious community with who would benefit from uh, discovering many of the things we talk about in the show, uh, we'd invite you to pass along the show to them because we are working to, of course, study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Sandy, always a pleasure, and I'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, everyone. Take care.